what I wanted to say about viruses is short-lived. There's a lot of different viruses out there. The only way for you to know exactly whether or not your plant has, say, tomato or tobacco mosaic virus or uh, cucumber mosaic virus or whatever other virus it could have is by uh, taking that, the plant tissues and uh, putting them in a crucible, grinding them down, taking a, a ELISA strip and putting it in there and testing it for it. But those ELISA strips are very expensive and they're looking for certain enzymes that are produced by the virus. So you see so the virus comes in, hijacks the cell, gets the ribosomes to start making things for it. The cell blows up, which is referred to as lysing. It blows up, releasing more viruses throughout the system. That's how we get a cold. You know, that's how plants get a cold or trees, et cetera. That's how they get those viruses. Uh, our immune system has to eventually develop or somehow develop uh, antibiotics towards or antibodies towards these viruses. But anyhow, with plants, um, what you end up with is that if the plant does not have the ability to notice that that's a virus, so you have something going on with essentially the COP or RNAi, then it, it cannot shut down some of these processes. Uh, that goes back to understanding the DNA as well as having the essential building blocks which comes only through proper nutrition. Um, the other statement I wanted to say is that uh, those ELISA strips work on the same principle as pregnancy tests, where essentially it's looking for a certain enzyme, a certain hormone. If it's there, it turns purple. You got it. Well, those are very expensive. So to be buying these ELISA strips and you know, figuring out, you know, oh, I just might get this or I just might get that, it's really not practical or cost effective. It's best to just send it to a disease clinic or somewhere else and have it tested if you really believe that's what it is. And I believe if you, you're 100% convinced that you have a virus in your production system, you need to have that plant tissue taken in and verify that you have that virus. Because it's only until you know that you're dealing with that virus that you know what other decisions you can make. So you could possibly search for uh, varieties that have genetic resistance to, those, to, to that virus, or you need to think about what is vectoring that virus. For those of you that don't know what vectoring is, vectoring is when something, for example, we'll say an aphid, goes somewhere and bites, uh, I, I'll tell you the problem I had, my neighbor grows tobacco. Tobacco has every, it has a lot of pathogens. It's been bred to uh, resist a lot of different viruses. So if you smoke, or your husband or your wife smokes, or your dad or your father or your neighbor smokes, uh, almost any pack of cigarettes you can pull off the shelf is going to test positive for tobacco mosaic virus and tomato mosaic virus. So if you're growing Solanaceae's crops and you smoke, or you, somebody, you know somebody that smokes, or you even shake hands with somebody that smokes, after they smoke the cigarette, and then you go and you decide you're gonna work on your crop, you are gonna take that virus from that cigarette and put it onto your crop. Uh, but that's not vectoring. Vectoring is when perhaps an aphid is on a tomato plant, it has piercing sucking mouth parts, that means it's gonna penetrate the cells, it's gonna to seek to take something out of that plant, and when it penetrates that cell, uh, it could be contaminated with bacterial organisms, it could be contaminated with viruses, and then it flies away and it comes over to your plant and then it bites it and then it inoculates it with that virus or that bacteria. That's referred to as vectoring. On the spray here list, 
there are certain contact sprays you can use. They're not very popular anymore. I don't even think that they're, I'm not sure whether or not they're listed on there, I don't remember. But those contact sprays, the way they work is that they're translaminar or they're systemic. So say for example, I take a certain product and I spray it all over my tomato plants or my beans or whatever, and uh, it's supposed to prevent uh, aphids from coming in. So the aphids show up, and the aphid comes in, and it has this stuff painted on it, coated on it, if you will. It bites on it, and it says, this tastes nasty. And then it flies off, and it goes to another leaf, and it bites on it, and this tastes nasty, and then it leaves. That's essentially what those contact sprays are doing. They're essentially putting this nasty flavor onto your crop, so when the pest comes in and it bites down on it, it says, this is gross. However, if that aphid or beetle or whatever it is was recently on an infected plant, it could come in and infect hundreds of your plants in just a day with whatever virus it might have and vector that disease. So it's why you really don't want to use those types of sprays in your production system. Another thing I'll go on to say with certain varieties of plants is that for over, well over 100 years, we have been selecting pretty much everything everybody eats. It has been selected predominantly for its production characteristics, like Whitmar is not in the room anymore. He was saying that you're paid for, grow, for, for growing calories. That's what the farmer's been paid to do. Um, so they're selecting crops for, uh, that produce well. And we have not selected species and selected genetics that have perhaps resistance to different pathogens or have uh, perhaps can translocate more of a certain vitamin and be you know, more, more healthier to you in some way. We have been selecting simply by production, by yields and by tonnage. And what we've done over the years now, and this is actually a crisis, um, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but there's a very good, I mean, uh, uh, Myers is his last name. I want to say Mark Myers is his name, but I, I, that, that's not right. But anyway, Myers is Jim Myers. That's his name. Jim Myers in uh, Oregon State uh, University. He is in charge of the plant of vegetable breeding and genetics. And um, the concerns he brought to my attention is that we have selected for yield to such a point where we have almost no capacity to uh, for these plants have almost no capacity to resist new pathogens, new diseases that are coming out uh, that may not even be new. They have always been there. It's just that they weren't here. They may have been brought from other parts of the globe and brought to the United States. Uh, so we have really complicated that. So now the, the, the next thing that we're trying to do, or the other issue is, we have also selected plants that don't have the nutritional content that we really need as human beings, as a human race. Uh, so this is causing problems in our food production system. So now the next the move that he was trying to make, or at least suggesting that we need to make, is that we need to start selecting genetics and going back to wild types, looking for wild tomatoes, wild potatoes. So, you know, they came up with the recent, uh, the uh, Simplot came up with an innate potato, which is um, genetically resistant to late blight. Well, where did they get those genes? They got it from a wild type of potato that grows in uh, Peru. Uh, however, they use modern technology to take those genes out of that variety and put it into a newer variety instead of just crossbreeding and crossbreeding until you select the potato that's genetically resistant. So we have issues that, that our food production and a large portion of our seeds that we have do not have the genetics that were originally there because we have not been selecting for those genetics. And we have been doing this for a very long time as a human race. 
So that's one of the biggest issues. So when we start to argue about heirloom or not heirloom, I don't really think that's a valid argument because there's really no real thing as an heirloom. And furthermore, almost every seed that's out there was selected by some farmer for some reason. And usually that reason is production and not nutrition. So um, anyhow, I have a whole PDF on different varieties and different nutritional content and different vegetables. And when you start looking at it, you realize, wow, um, you're, you're, you're <laughs> there's such serious swings. Uh, and, I mean, like beta carotene, for example. Beta carotene is you know, two vitamin A's put together. Uh, it's a perfect, two perfect vitamin A's put together. Well, um, the orange, the color has been bred out of our food system. Everything, you know, all the tomatoes are red now. Well, red tomatoes compared to orange tomatoes have maybe 25% the, the beta carotene. But how often have you walked into the store and found an orange tomato? You, you never find it. <laughs> you know? So things like that. Um, other issues is corn. And I mean, I could go on all day with that. But anyhow, that's just with breeding. So to get back to viruses, which is really the topic here, uh, vectoring is a serious issue. Uh, trying to uh, proper nutrition so the plant can defend itself so we can see, like we saw in the video, that it has the capacity to recognize that it's being invaded and fight against that uh, is a big issue. Uh, let's see, testing for, uh, testing for uh, um, viruses to verify that you have whatever that virus is that you might be concerned in. Concerned with, it, it's always best, it's always gonna be cheapest to just take it to the disease clinic. ELISA strips are very expensive. They're like $300 a pop or something. I mean, you don't wanna you know, buy that and then find out, oh, it's negative, it's something else. <laughs> so you gotta spend another $300 to see if it's maybe tobacco mosaic virus or something else, I don't know. But it's just, it's, it's not practical. Um, so I'm gonna move off now to the last portion to finish this up. We will go to, um, Disease development and, pop and uh, populations of plants. It's, you know, how fast is the speed? How many is the efficiency? How far is, the, is associated with the movement? Uh, let's see. Okay, so con a contagious polycyclic disease epidemic is typically described by an S-shaped disease curve. I'll show what that is. The overall speed, the steepness of the curve can be summarized by an infection rate parameter R. So if you take biology, they, they, uh, of course, they talk about R strategists, which is saying simply that they reproduce very quickly. So uh, aphids are R strategists. I mean, an organism, aphids are organisms that are born pregnant. So imagine, born pregnant. You're, you're, you're not going to, you know, somehow out-reproduce that thing. If it decides to take off, it takes off. So uh, that's a R strategist, which is a potential birth rate uh, or a birth rate of a new disease. Um, it talks about the magnitude of R. I won't really get into that. High value of R rate generally lessens the benefit obtained from. Okay, so if it's a high value of R, like for example, uh, uh, late blight is an example of a high uh, R rate. Uh, powdery mildew could, is relatively high. Most of your viruses are relatively high as well. Uh, anyhow. With a really high R rate, sanitation is not really the key. So that's what I was saying. When we go to these greenhouses, and they make you get in all these suits, and they're, I mean, very dogmatic about keeping the place clean, and I just chuckle. <laughs> because, I mean, the wind can just blow from a different direction, and the whole place is inoculated. And multiple greenhouses, I mean, this happens in the greenhouse industry. Oh, they had a whitefly outbreak. Or, oh, they had a... 
late blight or early blight or whatever, anthracnose or fusarium outbreak, and it just wipes out their crop. I mean, it goes through these, these hydroponic facilities and it wipes them out in a hurry. Uh, I know a couple of different, uh, one facility in Arizona totally wiped out in a matter of a month, uh, 180 acres of tomatoes in a, in a greenhouse, wiped out. I mean, in a matter of a few months. So, you know, people think hydroponic is the farming of the future. It's definitely not. Uh, it's the farming of the present. That's all it really is. The farming of what? I'm sorry. Of the present. It's what they're doing right now. So here's an example of uh, uh, polycyclic disease in the timeline. So when you try to practice sanitation, so studies have shown that even a secure to uh, a, a second curve was generated even after an 80% reduction in the primary inoculum. So they go in, they sanitize the whole place. People talk about, what if I go in and I spray all this stuff and I kill everything, the whole room, the roof, the ceilings, the ground, I burn it, I, I, I spray whatever. Uh, Sanidate is a fine example, but there's other uh, things. And you go in and you reduce 80% of your inoculum. All that does with an R rate of 0.2, which isn't even really that bad, it buys you eight days. All it does is push this down. And when we start looking at different diseases and, when you, and, and the different sprays that you can actually use, most of these sprays, all they're doing is slowing down the germination of the fungal spore. So all they're doing is buying you time, which is why when you read the label, it tells you spray again every 7 to 14 days. Why? Because all you're doing is delaying the germination maybe 7 to 14 days. That's it. So if all you're buying is 7 to 14 days, you know, it's this constant dependence. It's like being on insulin. Who wants to be on insulin? Nobody wants to be on insulin. You know, you want to get over the disease. So this is really not that great of an approach to think that either sanitation or some spray or another that's going to prevent that from happening. All you're doing is this cat and mouse game, buying yourself time, buying yourself time, hoping that you can get maybe this mid-curve somewhere down over here to the harvest season where you won't have to deal with it until you've taken a harvest. That's just, I don't know. I, I don't like to play that game. I don't know who likes to play. Anybody in here that farms like to play that game? <laughs> I don't like to play that game. Like <laughs> what? The government shutdown, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the U.S. federal budget, right? Just, just pass a budget for a month. <laughs> Let's not fix the deficit. <laughs> just pass, kick the can down the road. Anyhow, so disease avoidance, avoidance disease by avoiding the pathogen or by altering the environment. You know, your um, cultural practices are targeted at one or more of the components of the triangle. So. You know, you go in and you sanitize the whole place. What do you do? You, you, you're essentially getting rid of the pathogen. You're trying to get rid of the pathogen. But like I said, there's so many spores. I mean, well, billions and billions of spores just on one leaf. So when you have a heavy infestation like these greenhouses that were heavily infestated, these are 180 acres. To come in and sanitize, uh, sanitize that, it's a ton of work. And you think it's going to really, you know, take care of the problem? No, I'm pretty sure there was more issues than just sanitation. But... It's what they like to practice. So um, avoidance measures targeted at the pathogen, usually you know, principles of control targeted at the pathogen, exclusion, eradication, avoidance. You know, avoidance of the path pathogen is industry migration. So this could be you know, essentially, well, if uh, you know, your garlic is going to get hit by a certain uh, fungal pathogen, well, you stop growing garlic. Well, you know, that doesn't really help you if your market is garlic, right? <laughs> you know, if, if your market's corn, you don't want to have to switch to beans if there's no market for beans, you know. So that's not really a good practice, but that's typically what they do. Uh, squash is another example out in uh, New England. Uh, Phytophthora sissi, 
It's knocking out the squash. So people are saying, well, we have very little acreage to grow squash. But nobody really goes and addresses the nutritional issue. Uh, that's the problem with the Phytophthora, which Phytophthora suggests it's what? Anomycete. It's an omycete fungus. A lot, of these, a lot of these squash fields are right on the Connecticut River. They're waterlogged soils. They're, they're nutrient deficient and they're waterlogged. So I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's just silly. You know, you really, you gotta look at the nutrition. Um, crop rotations, of course, is a very common practice. Everywhere, planting date or harvest date, uh, changing it to where maybe you're trying to get ahead of the, uh, ahead of the uh, pathogen. So um, you know, some examples are trying to get the potatoes in early before the potato beetles come out. You know, you're, just, you're, you're just playing with timelines. You're not really fixing the problem. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of different extensions will recommend that you do things like this. Uh, let's see, and, and growers as well. Disease avoidance by modifying the environment, so changing the amount of water, changing, you know, if you've got grow lights, you, uh, you might have to give it a rest. Uh, you know, temperature adjustments in the greenhouse, maybe you need to put up a, a shade cloth in your greenhouse and cut the heat a little bit or cut the sun down a little bit. And of course, atmosphere, maybe you need to get some fans in there, um, multiple things you can do. Maybe you're growing things outside of the growing season, maybe you need to adjust that. Uh, but these are all minor changes that you can make to your crop. Uh, let's see. Another one is irrigation management. This is a really good example of uh, verticillium wilt on uh, potatoes. An example here is, uh, let's see, suppressed disease development by deficient irrigation early in the season. So what they do is that they plant, you can plant your potatoes in the season, and then you're going to irrigate, in other words, you're going to give them maybe about 60% uh, to 70% of the actual water that a tomato would call for until you, until you get to the tuber initiation stage. And what's the tuber initiation stage? When it flowers. There you go. So as soon as the crop flowers, you go back to normal irrigation. Once you go back to normal irrigation, you're dealing with a, uh, what type of fungus? An omycete fungus. I'm sorry, ascomycete fungus. So it's going to want a high humidity environment. So you reduce your irrigation and your dry at first so that you don't produce the environment that is necessary for that fungus to take off. However, your tuber elong your, your, your um, tomato tubers, some folks say about every four days they need to be watered. And if you don't water them, you start to actually, the plant starts to pull the moisture out of the tubers. So you want to put that water down to really swell those tubers up and uh, you know, get bigger potatoes. So you go to, you move over to normal irrigation level and then you go to your harvest so that the disease instead of starting over here at the planting stage starts at the tuber initiation stage which could be 60 days down the road so you're just buying time but you haven't fixed the underlying issue which is nutrition usually uh, and of course this is a, a bigger issue with wet soils so here's a, a graph of uh, yields you know kilograms per plot uh, 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 you know deficient it was definitely a little bit less than the optimal water but um, you know, excessive water reduced the yields that much to where you really, the disease really took off. So you saw 1.1 uh, instead of uh, 1. Point, I don't know, 2, 3 or so uh, kilograms per plot. This is just an example of how irrigation really changed your yields and going deficit in the different practices that we had there. Uh, let's see here. All right. so. Management of foliar leaf wetness is going to affect botrytis in your strawberries. Oh, yes. So here's another one. Uh, how, many, you know, how many hours does the spore need to be wet before it decides to initiate germination? That's what we're looking at here. So with botrytis on strawberries, from 8 to 32 hours is all it takes. It is temperature dependent. But just 8 to 32 hours of the leaf being wet 
or, or, or the tissues being wet is all you need for botrytis to take off, right? So if you can keep that leaf um, dry, it's less likely that you need to worry about that spore taking off. With puccinia on wheat, it's 9 to 15 hours. With sclerotinia on beans, it's 10 to 22 hours. So now we'll look at this example. This is a fine example of when you should set your irrigation times if you have control of your irrigation times. So we look here at uh, leaf wetness intensity. So in both these studies, in both these plots here, the same amount of irrigation water was put out. It was just put out at a different time. So at first, you start watering at 6 in the morning. You water for 4 hours. So you're done by 10 in the morning. At that point, the sun is still high. You still have enough heat of, in the day. We are talking about here, you know, uh, uh, in the uh, late spring or summertime, there's enough heat in the day to dry that leaf off. So what you do, what you notice, you only have maybe a maximum of 11 hours of actual leaf wetness, right? Now let's compare that to you decide you want to irrigate at uh, 12 p.m., which is noon, and you're going to irrigate for four hours, and you're going to turn that, that center pivot, or you're going to turn your sprinklers or whatever off at uh, 4 o'clock. And at this point, the sun's already on its way down. The day is cooling. There's not enough heat to dry that leaf. That leaf will, may stay wet clear until about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. You see the difference? So how many hours, the difference in hours, though you irrigated and you put the same amount of uh, moisture on the same crop, uh, the actual length of, uh, uh, of leaf wetness in this scenario is about, oh goodness, what is that, about 18 hours? So when you decide to irrigate and how much water you put down, it's not just about how much water, but it's also about what time you decide to irrigate and how that's going to control the leaf wetness. So then you look at the duration of leaf, leaf wetness when you water at noon. It's much shorter, and it's, it's straight linear regre regression. So you really you want that leaf to dry off so that you don't get these fungal spores taken off. You know, and these are all things outside. I mean, we're, we're here. All we're doing is altering the environment, right? We're not changing the host. We're talking about how to change the environment. Uh, and this, of course, was done in periods followed by sunny days. So this was a sunny day. This was not a cloudy day. Another, this is another thing we can do. I talked about it earlier. These are grapes controlling uh, botrytis or bunch rot on grapes is uh, deleafing. So what they do with these uh, vines here, they come in the center and they get rid of all the leaves right there in the center. And the problem, what happens largely with, with uh, grapes is that they produce so much foliage. If you don't come in and remove that foliage, you develop these microclimates of excessive humidity inside of the, in, inside of the, uh, of the plant and then you start to fight pathogens. So coming in and, and appropriately managing this, getting your, getting your labor to keep those, uh, that, that leaf, uh, keeping that area de-leafed, as well as it, it, sometimes it, it really helps to go in and prune this, uh, and a couple of other things, but anyhow, that really drastically reduces the amount of moisture, or I'm sorry, humidity that you'll find in that leaf, and that will keep the uh, uh, botrytis and as well as powdery mildew down. And here's an example of before deleafing and after deleafing. You know, you couldn't even see through the thing, and now you can really see through the thing. You get the sun coming in and drying, drying the leaf out. Uh, so this is leaf removal in grapes. So here's foliar canopy management. So now we're talking about row spacing and with what, with respect to white mold uh, control in soybean. So uh, way back in 1990, let's see. White mold is a relatively new disease in the U.S. soybeans. In the 70s, soybean yields were greatly increased by seeding with grain drills, which put the rows real close together. 
And then uh, instead of uh, row planters, the narrow rope spacing, however, allowed sclerotinia to build up in the production system. The current trend is now going backwards. People are starting to actually spread the rows out and let the air get in there and dry that leaf foliage up to reduce the uh, incidence of sclerotinia on soybeans. It's just another example of how reducing, you know, opening up that canopy, drying up that leaf is going to reduce that uh, incidence of disease. Of course, there's disease avoidance by managing uh, host susceptibilities. So uh, besides genetics, what else can we control? Nutrition. That is it. Changing nutrition. Nature and frequency of wounds is the other thing. So nutrition, I'm not going to get into. I'll talk about it tomorrow if you want to hear about it. Whitmar's talked about it a whole bunch. Bob Gregory's talked about it a whole bunch in the last years, but I'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, the next thing is nature and frequency of wounds. So here's some common farm practices we'll talk about here in a minute. So we're looking at uh, pears here. Pears, like most other stone fruits, you know, you harvest them and you got to put them in boxes and put them away and, you know, over the winter and the next year you go out selling these products. So you sell your harvest throughout the year. You don't sell it all on, you know, shortly after the harvest. So here we're looking at gray mold and uh, blue mold, bullseye rot. Um, so what, what causes these pathogens to take off in the storage room? This is referred to as the middle lamella, the area in between your cells. High calcium content in the lamella makes fruits more resistant to decay. Study after study has figured this, has answered this question. Question is, how do you get that calcium in there? So root organisms use enzymes to dissolve the middle lamella between the cells. The higher the calcium content in the middle lamella between the cells, lower the incident of fungal pathogens on your fruit in storage. So if you want to increase the storage of your apples and your oranges, uh, yeah, even your oranges and your, uh, even though that's citrus, but your apples and your pears, et cetera, and your other stone fruits, you really got to get that calcium levels right in your orchard. As, and I talked about nitrogen as well. Uh, so, oh, yes, I forgot I put this in here. So this is nitrogen. So nutritional status of fruit at harvest in scenario one. All right. so. What happens a lot, I talked about this earlier, I forgot that I put these slides in here. Abundant nitrogen, excessive vigor, no matter the crop, it's always the same. You end up with shoot fruit co competition, so what are you competing? So you're, you're, when, you when you produce excessive uh, vigor through excessive nitrogen, you have the, meristem the meristematic stem cells, which are the tips of the shoots, they're trying to grow more leaf and foliage, and then you have your flowers uh, which is referred to as a floral stem cells, are competing for nutrients. And when this happens, you usually end up with uh, 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 aborted flowers. A lot more flowers tend to abort, uh, as well as uh, low crop density, and then uh, you end up also with low fruit in the calcium, which promotes rot. Or you end up with just excessive nitrogen in the fruit, which also promotes rot. So this is, these are studies where they've looked at these very things I mentioned earlier, managing the nitrogen, making those applications of nitrogen at the right time, not putting those fertilizers in in the spring where you're going into your, your, your uh, uh, floral stage, where you're getting ready to put out your floral buds, because what that will do is that if you end up with too high of a calcium to nitrogen ratio, you will end up blocking calcium. And it won't make it into the crop. It's best to, uh, well, they suggest anyway that it's best to put any nitrogen fertilizers down in the fall. That's the uh, extension recommendation anyway. Uh, I have other recommendations, but 
I won't really go into them right now. So nutritional status of fruit at harvest, scenario two, you had moderate vigor uh, and orchard calcium sprays. So they actually did studies where they went around spraying um, synthetic forms of calcium. I think it was calcium chloride that was used. And uh, so you end up with more high ca uh, higher calcium content in the fruit, which leads to direct inhibition of fungal enzymes, which uh, is more resistant to fungal decay. Or you get less mature fruit, slower uh, respiration and senescence, which means uh, the fruit is not pushed into, it doesn't overmature, making simpler or easier sugars, which are more likely to die. Cells are gonna actually die once they get too, too ripe, as we've seen in the refrigerators. And then of course fungus comes in and takes over, just like you see it in the refrigerator. When something is spoiled and it's all nasty, that's fungus that's growing on it. Um, okay, so we look here, oh yes, this was a study that was done on the effects of calcium sprays and storage atmosphere on pear decay. So what they did is they, they're putting CO2 into some of these storage units where they have uh, pears and apples to try to lower the incidence of fungal rots of the fruit. So they looked at different uh, scenarios here where they did 20% CO2 with field treatment of calcium, and then they looked at the average lesion diameter and the, and the amount of blue mold and gray mold, as well as the percentage of wounds that were affected. So what we see is when we went to 20% CO2 in the atmosphere of the storage room, as well as calcium treatment, we had about 0.5, uh, uh, what, what was the incidence of mold development, uh, blue mold development on the fruit, 1.9 in the gray mold, 6.8 in the blue mold, with the, per, uh, the percentage of wounds infected was 6.8 over here, with the gray mold it was 20.8. So with this side is really the one that's more important because you're looking at the number of wounds on your fruit that actually got infected with mold. So what you saw is that the best scenario here was 20% CO2 with calcium treatment. Uh, at in, this is calcium treatment in the spring when you're putting out flowers, folks. This is not calcium treatment when it's in the storage room. All right. So we see that there was a gray mold was 20.8%. If you go down here to pure air with no calcium, 99.2%. And you see all the betweens. It definitely goes up significantly up. And you look even at just pure air in the storeroom with the calcium treatment uh, was still considerably, considerably, a considerable Im improvement for, uh, compared to without it, which is really interesting to note. And it really makes a serious uh, difference when we're looking at the actual uh, number of wounds. So you see one, first off, wounds are really important. The wounds is where the, the molds want to grow. Why? because they don't have to have the enzymes to break those walls. The walls are already broken. So when we're looking at the food that you're putting into the storage for, to go over the winter or throughout the year, uh, you look at the different punctures and bud scratch and bucket strap staples and other things that, that destroy it. And then they did studies to just look and see, well, what, well how do we get these wounds on the fruit? Uh, so they ended up with a scatter plot. And you know, at first, this is kind of confusing. You see skin, uh, skin wounds versus fruit firmness. And these were two different studies that were done. So when you actually highlight how they were paying their employees that were collecting the fruit, then all of a sudden it makes sense. So when you look at the bins that were, you know, that were put together by the people that were paid by the bin to collect it, this is what they found. An average of 13.9% of the fruit was had some sort of damage to the skin. When you look at the bins that where folks were paid by the hour, it was only 4.3%.
So how you pay your harvesting crew has a lot to do with the kind of the quality of the product that you're going to have in the bin when you go to put it in the storage. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.